This episode of Superman in the Bronze Age is sponsored by Discount Comic Book Service. Want to keep up on all of your favorite comics, graphic novels, and collected editions, but don't want to pay full retail price? Look no further than Discount Comic Book Service. DCBS is an online comics retailer that offers comic fans the comics they need at the prices they want, with monthly specials that range from 45 to 75% off the retail price, and over 13,000 individual collected editions and graphic novels in stock, DCBS is the one-stop shop that every comic fan longs for. You can find them on the web at www.dcbservice.com. Also, be sure to visit their sister stores, In Stock Trades and My Digital Comics. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over the Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. This is Superman Superman in the the Bronze Age. Age. everybody and welcome to episode 107 of superman in the bronze age i am your host charlie niemeyer and today we are going to look at a story so controversial so well it's not really controversial as it is strange one of the most disregarded stories of the bronze age but first i got an email and it's from our old pal russell bragg and he writes hi charlie No worries. I found the time to listen during my week off. My wife and I went to Gettysburg at the beginning of the week. We had an awesome time. Whenever we go on a trip, I always look to see if there are any comic shops in the area. I was excited because there were three listed. However, upon trying to find them, I found that not one of them existed anymore. I was very hopeful of finding some of the Superman issues you've been talking about for a good price, but it wasn't meant to be. Superman 329 was as mind-boggling to me as 328 was. I'm sure it will make more sense when I find the issue. I do look forward to reading and listening to your show at the same time. I very much enjoyed the Mr. and Mrs. Superman story. I can't wait to see that one as well. I wish the comics explosion could have lasted a little longer so we could read more two-story comic books. At least we have the Superman family comic where I believe all the Superman backups went. Uh, just to break in, yes, uh, Private Life of Clark Kent moves over there, as does the Mr. and Mrs. Superman feature, and, well, those were the only really backups, but yes, they all move over to Superman Family. Anyway, back to Russell's email. 
The DC Comics Presents show is going well. I probably cut about 20 minutes in editing episode number one. I was so nervous recording, many of the things I wanted to say slipped my mind. For example, mentioning that you had covered DC Comics Presents number one on and which show, the ads, etc. I hope it came off well. Episode two hopefully will be out by the time this show is out. How many more episodes do you have planned? Are you coming up to the Superman issues where I can follow, or you are coming up to the Superman issues where I can follow along again, up to 3.35? I know your show is coming to an end, and I have a pretty good handle on it, but I'm going to miss it and you. On that sappy note, I guess I'll end for the week. Well, thank you, Russell. Uh, the number of episodes I've still got. After this one I'm recording today, I've got about eight or nine left, and then the show will be over. But, don't worry, that's coming along very well. And Russell's show has started. His first episode has come out. It does cover DC Comics Presents number one. And it is rather good, so I encourage you all to go listen to it. Uh, Russell, I haven't had a chance to write you yet, but I have listened to it. So there you go. Um, but yes, let's see. We're going up to 335. And then we've got a couple more issues before we do our finale with the obvious finale of any Bronze Age Superman podcast. Uh, but anyway, what we're going to do next is I'm going to play you a couple promos. When we come back, Superman number 330. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Hey, a bunch of damn dirty apes. It's me, Maury Clawhammer. Don't you recognize me? Of course you don't. I've gone back to my simian roots. Maury Clawhammer is going ape. That's right. Coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com, it's Planet of the Apes Month. Hey, hey, look at me. I'm peeling a banana with my feet while watching all five of them monkey movies. Now I'm reading a chimpanzee comic while swinging on my swinging tire swing. Woohoo! Then it's toy time when some kid throws me a vintage Mego Dr. Zayas action figure. And I'm gonna put it where the sun don't shine in front of a whole third grade class. And nobody's gonna bat an eye. Then I'm gonna pull it out and I'm gonna fling it at him. It's a whole month of monkey madness. Coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Check it out. I'm devolving by the second. Or is it the other way around? Hello, podcast listener. My name is Russell Bragg, and I host a podcast called The DC Comics Presents Show. Every episode, I talk about the DC Comics Presents comic, starring Superman. I will be detailing all 97 issues, plus the four annuals. I will be spotlighting the DC character that Superman teams up with, plus I will be looking at the comic spinner rack to see what other comic books were on sale. So join me, Russell Bragg, for each exciting episode of the DC Comics Presents show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com. Dot com for more information. That's D-C-C-P-S-H-O-W. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. 
Superman number 330 had a cover date of December 1978 and an on-sale date of September 18, 1978, with a cover price of just 40 cents. The Master Mesmerizer of Metropolis was written by Marty Pascoe based on a story concept by Al Schroeder III. Penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Frank Schermonte, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Julius Schwartz. It's a bright, beautiful day in Metropolis, other than the satellite that has dropped out of the sky and is heading straight for the WGBS building. Standing at one large window to watch it are Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, and Clark Kent. And as the satellite gets closer, Jimmy, Lois, and Lana all urge Clark to drop the secret identity nonsense and stop the satellite. Apparently, they've just been humoring him all these years, but now is no time for games as Jimmy rips open Clark's shirt to reveal the Superman costume underneath. And as the satellite is about to crash into the building, Clark wakes up. Yes, it was all a dream, but it has caused Clark to question his disguise. After all, now that he looks at it, it's pretty amazing that a simple pair of glasses actually works. But he was just a kid when he thought, it, thought up the disguise, and so far only a handful of people have ever suspected that Clark and Superman were the same person. Besides, Clark is seen by millions of people on the news every day, and Superman's also famous, yet no one seems to have figured it out. It's at that point that that subplot is brushed aside as our second subplot screeches onto the scene in the form of an armored car driving out of control, narrowly missing the bus that Clark got on while he was thinking about his secret identity, and crashing into a fountain. Soon, a strangely garbed man wearing a giant propeller on his back floats onto the scene, drawing a crowd in the process, including the other passengers on the now-stopped bus, allowing Clark to be swept along to an open manhole for super speed costume change in the sewer. After flying off, then doubling back to make it appear that Superman has arrived from elsewhere, the eye on the stranger's cowl begins to glow, and the crowd starts robbing the armored car for him and tossing the diamonds into the sack he's carrying. Superman gives the stranger a sock to the jaw, but he's wearing a super shock-absorbent chin guard, which somehow absorbed enough of the punch to keep his jaw attached to his face. He identifies himself as Spellbinder, and then uses the glowing eye to order a little girl into the path of an oncoming taxi. A quick use of super suction allows the taxi to go up and over the girl, but also gives Spellbinder time to hit Superman with a device on his chest. At this point, the fountain that currently houses the armored car stops working, and a crystalline creature crawls out of it. As Superman and the creature tussle, the onlookers come out of their haze to see Superman acting crazy in the fountain, which is still operational, I might add. Suddenly, the creature vanishes, and Superman realizes that he was just a hypnotically induced delusion, which should not be possible because apparently Superman cannot be hypnotized. Now, I, I want to say that's happened before, but I honestly can't remember, and I'm too lazy to look. Anyway, meanwhile, back at WGBS, Morgan Edge is introducing Lana to Martin Corda, the new associate producer on the 6 o'clock report. Now, you remember Martin, right? Uh, he was the guy who shares Superman's affinity for spit curls and has been kidnapped and replaced by Metallo back in 317, but now he's back because he was rescued and stuff like that. Well, now he's back at work and is going to be is going to do an editorial on the evening newscast, so Edge asks Lana to take Corda to wardrobe to be fitted for a WGBS blazer. But before they can get out the door, a giant TV fills the skies over Metropolis. 
on it is Superman. And in order to prevent the Spellbinder from being able to commit any more robberies, he's using the large screen and breaking into TV coverage all over the city to super-hypnotize the citizens of Metropolis to resist Spellbinder. When he finishes, no one, including Morgan, Lana, and Martin, remember the giant TV or being hypnotized. After returning the TV to the fortress, Superman heads back to Metropolis to change to Clark in the usually vacant at this time of day wardrobe department. But he's so lost in thought that Martin and Lana catch him mid-change. But Lana doesn't mention Clark. She's just wondering why Superman is putting on a suit and glasses. Thinking his hypnotic block has affected her memory, he tells her that Clark is letting him borrow his identity for a bit. But Lana thinks he's just putting her on, as he is much too handsome and ripped to pass for Clark Kent. We then learn that, while she used to think that Clark was his secret identity, the one thing she could never quite figure out was how he could change his appearance so drastically when he changed to Clark. And after seeing him now, she's finally convinced that he couldn't possibly be Clark Kent. The conversation is interrupted by someone letting Lana know that Spellbinder has been spotted at the Norwich Sound Laboratories. After Lana and Martin rush off, Superman realizes that, apparently, sticking up on Spellbinder as Clark won't work. So he uses a mirror and some self-hypnosis to create a super-hypnotic block on himself, and then takes off for the Norwich Sound Lab. Reaching the lab, Spellbinder congratulates Superman on the neat hypno-block trick, which worked so well that he had to shoot the guards when they resisted his hypnotism attempts. Then he uses the device on his chest again, telling Superman that he's lost his powers. And while Superman tells him that that won't work this time, it apparently does because Spellbinder is able to easily dodge Superman's punch and then hit Superman in the face with the metal case he's carrying, which also appears to do some damage to the case. And while he exposes about how he usually uses light in his hypnotism but really prefers to use sound, he collects the white discs that were inside the case and then takes off using his propeller pack. A couple of guards enter the scene and fire a few rounds at the fleeing criminal, but the bu bullets just ricochet off, hitting Superman in the arm. And although he seems to feel pain, seeing the bullet bounce his arm breaks the hypnotic spell. But instead of going after Spellbinder, he just waves his fist in the air, upset that the metal case breaking on his face was too subtle to break him out of his trance earlier. But this makes Superman realize something, including why his super hypnoblock didn't work and why Lana didn't recognize him as Clark. So after releasing Ernie at the planet from his hypnoblock and a quick trip to the fortress, which both happened between panels, we rejoin Superman as he searches for Spellbinder. Remembering that his super hearing had picked up a faint humming noise when he was around the villain, even though they hadn't mentioned that anywhere else in the story, he attunes his super hearing to the frequency of that specific hum and follows it to Spellbinder, who is currently walking on an elevated walkway, for no apparent reason, in a trench coat and carrying a briefcase. A burst of heat vision burns away the coat and gives Spellbinder enough time to put on his cowl before Superman can attempt to hypnotize him. It doesn't work, and Spellbinder just leaps off, quickly removing his propeller pack from the briefcase and putting it on and flying off all before crashing to the ground without the benefit of super speed. Spellbinder hits Superman with the device on his chest again and tells him to leave, which he does. But in the process, he grabs the propellers off of Spellbinder's back, destroys them, and then pulls Spellbinder along in his wake, digging a hole in the ground for the villain to land in in the process. It's pretty deep, too. Superman reveals that he figured out that the device on Spellbinder's chest allowed him to hypnotize the Man of Steel using Sonics, so he's wearing super hear su bleh, so he was wearing super earplugs, which he picked up in the fortress in between panels, and 
used them to block out all the sound, which he must have put in after finding Spellbinder, which we also didn't see. And apparently he's been reading Spellbinder's lips this whole time. But with the plugs out, Spellbinder attempts his sonic trick again, but the sound is bounced off of the walls of the miniature Echo Canyon that he's in, which amplified the sound enough to actually knock him out. Investigating his costume, Superman discovers the Spellbinder's cowl contains special lenses, 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 which is why Superman wasn't able to hypnotize him, and why he still knew about Superman's hypno trick on TV, which Superman never actually points out. The device on his chest is a miniature phonograph, and those discs, those, and those white discs from before were high-frequency sound effect records. You remember records, which immediately dates the story. Also, the needle on the phonograph was diamond-tipped, which is why he had to rob the armored car to get diamonds to make more needles. And the humming noise was the sound of a tiny generator keeping the turntable powered on, since it takes too long to start it up again. With all that explained and out of the way, Superman turns Spellbinder over the police off-panel and releases the city from the hypnoblock, also off-panel. The next time we actually see something happening on panel, Clark is at WGBS visiting with this Ernie fella, who looks nothing like the Muppet, by the way. Ernie is a portrait artist in the newsroom, and Clark had given him a picture of Superman and a picture of Clark to redraw his sketches. Coming up with some I, some story about he's writing something for Perry White about being friends with Superman or something. The Superman image looks spot on, but the Clark drawing makes him look older, frailer, and with a receding hairline. He shows it to Lana for confirmation, and she agrees that, that it is spot-on how she sees Clark as well. This apparently confirms Clark's theory from earlier. Apparently, his power of superhypnotism, which is right up there with superventriloquism on my list of favorite Superman powers, is always working, subject, or projecting his subconscious desire to be seen as weak and frail. Normally, this wouldn't do anything, except that the lenses on Clark's glasses are made from shards of the plexiglass window out of his rocket, and some unknown property, which figures, uh, of the glass is intensifying this hypnotic effect. And since he doesn't see himself as frail and weak, it obviously doesn't work on him, which is why he wasn't able to hypnotize himself while he was wearing the glasses when he tried to set up the, the super hypnoblock. Apparently, cameras must also reproduce the effect, since he still looks that way on TV and in pictures, and it must linger in people a while since his disguise has still worked even when he's lost his powers. So while he thought the glasses were a dumb disguise, it turns out that they were the whole reason the disguise works at all. This also means that Superman has been the ma master mesmerizer of Metropolis all along. Okay, so let's look at the good parts of the issue first, shall we? Okay, first of all, the art was actually really good for the most part. Uh, th there wasn't too much action-y, so Kurt Swan's pencils worked fine for the story. Uh, I do like the subtle clues that were included that could have easily been overlooked on the first read-through, thanks to Pasco. Things like Spellbinder giving Superman props for the hypno-trick, even though everyone was supposed to forget the giant TV and being hypnotized. Uh, no attention was called to it, and I didn't even notice it until, it was written, until I was writing the synopsis, so I think that worked Excuse me, I think that worked pretty well, or I'm just reading too much into it, one or the other. Then, Spellbinder breaking the metal case on Superman's jaw, which I also didn't notice until Superman got mad at himself for not noticing it either, at which point I also shook my fist in the air and got mad at myself. Spellbinder's ability to plan ahead is also pretty cool, even though it didn't make much sense all the time. Building a shock absorber into the chin strap was a little far-fetched, 
I mean, makes sense, but it's a little far-fetched when dealing with Superman, as were the special anti-hypnotism lenses. I don't know how that's supposed to work. But the idea of using Sonics against Superman was actually a pretty good idea. And while carrying a record player on his chest may not have been the best idea, it does make sense that he needed to replace the records after the others have been all scratched up. The only problem is that with all that moving around, I can imagine you'd have sound effects of them that and repeating, and that would have messed up the whole effect. All right. Now for the bad stuff. Now, I can understand why they did the story. Even by the 70s, the idea of putting on glasses and a suit to hide that you're Superman just wasn't believable. I mean, look at some of the people. Granted, the, cost, the Superman costumes are great. But if you go to, I don't know, as I record this, the Metropolis Celebration is winding down. If you go there, you see a guy wearing a Superman costume. He looks great. He puts on a suit. It does not work. And that's not even with the glasses. So it just doesn't it wasn't that believable anymore, especially for someone that's on TV telling stories about Superman with the possibility of both faces being on screen at the same time. And with all that stuff going on for Superman, or with all the other stuff going on for Superman's 40th anniversary, like the Earth 2 wedding of Clark and Lois, the enlargement of Candor, the upcoming movie, plus other stuff, it makes sense to finally try to tackle this. But they didn't really need to. Uh, Clark Kent's disguise is part of that comic book suspension of disbelief, like uh, Batman able to get through the day working, sleeping only four hours, or his being able to wear masks over his cowl without it being hideously deformed because of the bat ears poking up, or Spider-Man's mask being expressive even though it's just a mask on his face. And while this was based on an idea by a frequent letter writer, there are just too many plot, uh, too many plot holes. For example, now this means that one day when he was a kid, Clark went from looking like he could be Superboy with glasses to looking freak or freak to looking weak, frail, and old, or at least older. Because he'd already been going to school by this point. He went to school, needed to use his heat vision, and it melted the lenses. So he goes home, finds some pieces of the broken windshield from the rocket, puts them in his frames, and wears those. Which means that starting right about that day, the way this story tells it, he must have been like, oh my gosh, Clark got old. Okay. And there's that. Plus, just last issue... Lana saw Clark basically naked, except for the glasses, and still thought that he could have been Superman. And with, the, with him wearing the glasses, he would have looked, I would imagine, all kind of skinny and frail, and definitely would have put an end to the suspicion. But she still asks him about his whereabouts because she still thinks that it was suspicious that, he, that Clark and Superman were without their clothes at the same time. Plus, this doesn't explain the fact that all those Clark Kent robots used to fool people just fine when they didn't have Kryptonian lenses and they were built based on the way Clark saw himself. And are we supposed to believe that the Kents, Supergirl, his teammates in the Justice League, and the members of the Legion of Superheroes, plus all the heroes he teamed up with in the Justice Society and the Earth 2 version of himself, etc., 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 never mentioned that his glasses made him look so dramatically different. And the best part is that all this is hypothesis on Superman's part about an unknown property of Kryptonian plexiglass. 
definitely not the best story of Pasco's run. And since it was forced upon him and still embarrasses him to this day, I'd say he'd agree with that statement. But you know what? I'd say this is a pretty darn good story, considering he didn't want to write it in the first place. And while it's quickly forgotten, I don't believe Lana gets too suspicious of Clark being Superman after this. So I guess technically there are some lasting implications of this story. But I don't want to go into it any further than that. So, after a couple of more promos, we'll be right back with the rest of this issue. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Alright, now, I'm going to go over the ads in the issue, but I would like everyone to keep in mind that my version of the issue is one of those Whitman, Whitman, Whitman reprints, so I'm not 100% sure the ad's going to be exactly the same. But, here's what I got. Uh, inside front covers Lego, so we're just going to skip that. There we go. Hold on, I'm trying to peel apart pages here. Uh, next one is for oh, this month's hostess ad is the baseball cards thing, so they don't. It doesn't look like we're going to have a superhero hostess ad this time. Thankfully, because I don't want to have to submit you to get that stuff again. Uh, Blamo soft and sugar-free bubble gum. Yay. Uh. Crossman Air Guns, Cleats by Tony Dorset, and Converse. Are there any superhero ads in this? Come on, people. Uh, now, the huge, <laughs> this is interesting, that huge three to four page uh, ad for Clark Bars has now been reduced to the top half of one page. Uh, the bottom half of it is the DC Superheroes poster book, though, with an introduction by Isaac Asimov. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the, the Shazam family, Green Arrow, the Joker, Luther, the Penguin, the Riddler, Aquaman, Catwoman, all your favorite heroes and villains from DC Comics are to 
are, are together in one giant book containing 24 full-color pull-out 11 and a quarter by 15 and a quarter inch posters. They make dynamic room decoration, decorators. And the artwork they use, which might actually be from the poster cover anyway, appears to be uh, artwork, my guess just from looking at it, would be Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano. Or possibly Dick Giordano by himself. Does not look like Neil Adams or anyone like that. Uh, the next page is half hodgepodge, half grit. Uh, next one's half Slim Jim, half Draftsman. Still doing that. Uh, next one's another hodgepodge. Wow, there's like no superhero ads in this issue. Uh, you can get a Star Wars microelectronic digital watch. The back inside covers for Carter's Ink Company. And the back page is um, monogram modeling kits for the Colonial Viper and the Cylon Raider from Battlestar Galactica. And that's it for the ads. No superhero type ads. Again, this is the Whitman copy. I don't know if there were more if you actually went and bought the actual issues, but it's possible that with the DC implosion that in order to supplement all the ad space that was paid for already, that they had to actually uh, just take out the house ads in order to have room. I do not know. All right, moving on to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at www.dcindexes.com and checking out the uh, DC database for this month, cover dated December 1978. There, like I said before, there aren't going to be as many comics this time, but it's still going to be worth looking at. Starting off the month, we have Batman number 306, which at one time was the oldest Batman comic I ever owned. It was my first pre-nightfall issue, I can tell you that. Uh, with with an well, actually is a very striking Jim Aparo cover. Uh, the title of this one is Night of the Siege, which Batman goes up against the Black Spider. And the murder mystery murder of Mrs. Batman concludes as the backup feature. Next up, DC Comics presents number four. The title is Sunstroke and involves Superman teaming up with the Metal Men, apparently against Chemo. And it's drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. And of course, you'll be able to hear that in just a few episodes coming up soon on DC Comics Presents Show. Check your local listings. Flash number 268, Riddle of the Runaway Comic. Apparently, the Earth-1 Flash, Barry Allen, is up against the Earth-2 Green Lantern and Wildcat over a copy of the Golden Age Flash comics. What amazing secret does a Golden Age comic hold that causes three heroes to fight for its possession? My guess? Secret identity. But I don't know. Never read that issue. I need to read some Bronze Age, or some Silver and Bronze Age Flash. I've never done that. I want to do that one of these days. Maybe after I finish the show and actually have time. <laughs> I'm going to have a kid by that point. Anyway. The reverse spells of Zatanna's magic... Kag... Sigam. Uh, this is the story about whether or not Zatanna is going to join the Justice League or not. It's a pretty good issue. I highly recommend that one. World's Finest Number 254 has several different stories, including a cover by Jim Aparo that doesn't look too Jim Aparo-ish. But if you've ever wanted to see Jim Aparo draw 
Superman going up against Sinestro while Batman lies unconscious. There's something you don't see every day. Anyway, uh, let's see. Superman and Batman are team up in Whom Gods Would Destroy. Black Canary deals with the primeval scream. Green Arrow is in the race is in the running. The Creeper, beware, Mr. Wrinkles. And Captain Marvel is in The Devil and Captain Marvel. Brave and the Bold number 145 has a Gem Aparo cover that's more, well, normal for him. Batman's up against... I do not know who, but he's teaming up with the Phantom Stranger in A Choice of Dooms. And I believe Gem Aparo has a history of drawing both Batman and the Phantom Stranger, so that is actually really cool. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 246. Will the last one to leave Mercury please close the planet? Which is weird. Also, Superboy battles the Fatal Five. Uh, Action Comics number 490, No Tomorrow for Superman. In this issue, Superman's heat vision and powers seem to go all crazy. Now, the story is that... In, and, I, and since these guys did it first, I kind of think John Byrne kind of stole from them. Uh, the previous issue of Action Comics was something about Krypton dying again. In that story, basically what happened is that the light energy from Krypton's destruction took about 40 years and finally reached Earth. This time, when it reaches Earth, it also messes with Superman's eyes, so his heat vision goes crazy. And he could burn anything at any time. And he keeps having to siphon off that buildup of energy. That's what this issue is about. Just thought I'd share that. Ten years before John Byrne came up with the same idea for kryptonite poisoning and his return to krypton anyway detective comics number 481 featuring the batman family uh let's see batman is in a ticket to tragedy robin oh i like this one okay this is this issue of detective comics is i believe their first one where they since the implosion caused them to have to cut down on their comics. Since Detective Comics was not selling very well, and Batman Family was actually selling very well, what they decided to do was keep Detective Comics going, but put the Batman Family in it. And the way they did that was, basically it was the same Batman Family, and Batman Family the logo for that is still the main focus of the cover. But it does have on there Detective Comics starring the Batman Family. So this is basically the next issue of Batman Family, plus the Batman story that would have appeared in Detective all in one book. Still no ads. Still 68 pages. Got all that? Good. The first story is Batman Ticket to Tragedy. Uh, let's see then. Uh, which is by Jim Starlin and Craig P. Russell. Robin does does the costume make the hero in which he actually wears several different costumes to stop some bad guys. Costumes all designed by fans of Robin, really. And by the end, he decides to stay with his usual sh short hot pants and booties thing ensemble that he's been wearing for years. Batgirl is in a slow death in China. Man Bat, the Whittles Snatch, which we're just going to skip over. And Batman deals with Murder in the Night, a two-continent caper by Denny O'Neill and Marshall Rogers. Green Lantern 111 co-starring Green Arrow. The Green Arrow or the Green Lantern of Earth 1 teams up with the Green Lantern of Earth 2 in Dark Things Cannot Stand the Light. 
which is part of the original Green Lantern's original oath. All right, Super Friends number one. No, number 15. The Overlord Goes Under. And basically, I don't know what happens in the story, but on the cover, the Super Friends have to stop a meteor shower from dooming Paradise Island. No Aquaman, but I see Batman and Wonder Woman. They're doing a very good job of hanging on to that invisible jet. And the Wonder Twins are just sitting there. No Gleek, either. And finally for the month, Wonder Woman number 250. Tournament. And apparently in this issue, there's a new tournament. Obviously. And someone else wins the right to be the new Wonder Woman. Now, I've never read the story. But I can tell you that this looks beautiful. It's by Rich Buckler and Dick Giordano. And it looks gorgeous. That's Wonder Woman 250. And that's going to be it for this month. Please feel free to leave a comment at the show posting. Or, I don't know, leave a review on iTunes. And when we come back next time, we'll be taking a look at the first part of a two-part story featuring introducing another new villain to Superman's Bronze Age world. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Show notes can be found at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com, as well as links to the RSS and iTunes feeds and more. Also, we have a Facebook fan page where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Feel free to like us there. Want to comment on the episode you just heard? Email the show at superbronze1970 at gmail.com. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of both the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and the Comics Podcast Network at www.comicspodcasts.com. Make sure to check out both sites for more great podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you again for listening, and God bless. to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones, on demand, and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. (laughs) 